Our scripture reading tonight is the final portion of John chapter 1. It is verses 35 through 51 of John chapter 1. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. Again the next day, John stood with two of his disciples, and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned, and seeing them following, said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which is to say, when translated, Teacher, Where are you staying? He said to them, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying and and remained with him that day. Now it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. The following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you hereafter, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. This is the word of the Lord. May he bless it in our hearing. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word once again this evening, pray that by your spirit you would prepare our hearts to receive it. Just as these disciples heard your call so many years, so many centuries ago and followed you, I pray that we would all be obedient to what your word requires of us this day and that we would trust and that we would be comforted by this Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In Jesus' name, amen. So in the last two Sunday evenings where I've been here, we were, we've been going together through this first chapter of the Gospel of John. So in the first installment, we looked at the Trinitarian glory of the incarnation of Jesus Christ in verses 1 through 18. 
Then last time we looked at the forerunner of Christ, John the Baptist, and his proclamation of Jesus who was to come. We see his revelatory confession upon Jesus appearing that Jesus is the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. God has prepared the way for Christ to come with John the Baptist preaching and teaching. That is not the only preparation that has occurred, for we see in our next passage tonight that God has prepared a group of disciples to receive the testimony of Jesus and to follow him. These will be the men who will accompany Jesus throughout his earthly life and ministry. They will be the ones who will proclaim him, who form churches, form the church. After he is gone, they will be the ones to carry the gospel to the ends of the known world. And so we look tonight at the beginning of the story of Jesus' disciples, and we will do this in four points. First, we look at the start in verses 35 through 39. Who are the first two disciples that Jesus calls, and why does it matter? Second, the spread in verses 40 through 44. Who comes next and how? Then third, we see a skeptic in verses 45 and 46. We see that one of Jesus' prospective disciples is a bit reluctant to follow for some reasons, which we will see. And then fourth and finally, we will see a sign in verses 47 through 51. Jesus shows his power and wins the skeptic over. So we have the start, the spread, the skeptic, and the sign. So first we will look at the start in verses 35 through 39. We return to our narrative after the, the day after the previous events where John the Baptist made his confession of faith that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We see that John is now standing there with two of his own disciples. Remember that by this point, John the Baptist had become quite popular. He had built a large following. We later learn in verse 40 that one of these two that was standing there was Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter and my personal favorite disciple. The other disciple is not named. However, tradition has held, and evidence does suggest that the other of the two standing there is none other than John the Apostle, the evangelist who wrote this book. Now, there are a few reasons to think this. First, whenever John the Apostle appears in the Gospel of John, he is never mentioned by name. He is either referred to by something generic like this, as just another disciple, or based on something he did. So, for instance, after the Last Supper, John refers to himself once as the one who had reclined at Jesus' side. Or sometimes he also refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. This specifically mentioning a disciple here, but not naming him, is consistent with the other ways that John refers to himself in this book. We see that this disciple follows Jesus like the others. There's no reason to omit his name for lack of significance. He's right there at the beginning, just like Andrew. But rather, it just seems to be John's way of talking about himself. What we probably have going on here is this is where John, the author of this book, makes his first appearance. But second, going forward in the life and ministry of Jesus, 
While all of the disciples are important and have their roles to play, there is a particularly close inner circle that forms around Jesus, which consists of Peter, Andrew, James, who is John's brother, and then John himself. So it would make sense that these who end up being the closest ones are the first ones, starting with Andrew and John, and then later branching out to include their brothers. The third, given the amount of knowledge and detail that is recorded in John's gospel concerning the ministry of John the Baptist, it seems that John the Apostle was quite familiar with John the Baptist's life and ministry, which this would make sense if John was one of John's disciples. He had originally been around and involved with the community surrounding John the Baptist, only here to be now handed off into the service of Jesus. So John the Baptist persuades Andrew and John with the same appeal that he had made the previous day. Behold the Lamb of God. Well, John has... The Baptist has thus far figured prominently in the narrative of John's gospel. We see even now that he is not interested in keeping the spotlight for himself. John the Baptist came to be the forerunner to Jesus and to prepare people for Jesus' coming. And now that Jesus has come, it is time for the handoff of glory and attention and of disciples to Jesus. We will see from this point Jesus taking center stage, taking the spotlight, and John receding, culminating with John's own declaration at the end of chapter 3 that he, Jesus, must increase and I, John the Baptist, must decrease. So we see here again, as we did before, John's humility and also his awareness of his purpose. He is there to give God glory, to give Christ glory, And even when he finds influence and success and builds a following of disciples, he knows that he must defer to Christ and his work. So these two disciples, hearing John the Baptist's exhortation, they follow Jesus. This first conversation that they have almost seems a bit awkward. Jesus turns and sees them following him, and he asks something that, Many of us would probably ask if someone was following us, what do you seek? Basically, what do you want? Why are you following me? Now, it is not that Jesus does not know that these men will follow him or why. He has, in fact, internally called and purposed them to follow him. But he asks so that the answer might be recorded for our understanding. Andrew and John first address him as rabbi, which I don't have to translate for you because it is here in the text. John already did. It means teacher. This is an important title in the time given to important Jewish men. Those who were rabbis, those who were teachers, they had, they would have schools, these groups of people that would follow them and learn from them. They would have a place of prominence. Andrew and John, thanks to John the Baptist's instruction, realize that Jesus is someone they should follow and someone they should pay attention to. And they know that because of who Jesus is, they should want to be where he is. And so they ask Jesus where he is staying because they want to be with him. They want to go where he goes and learn what he has to say. 
Now, how often are we invited into the place where Christ dwells and we approach the matter with indifference or disdain? You know, we say things in our minds like, ah, it's early on Sunday morning. I wish I could just sleep in or I have work to do or I have other responsibilities. But we see in these men that once they know of the Christ, they want to be where he is and they want to be among his people. So let that be an example for us. But that is not all that they do coming in and dwelling with Christ. This brings us to our second point. After the start, we see the spread in verses 40 through 44. Verse 40 tells us, as we've already discussed, that one of these two was Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter. Now, what does Andrew do after he has had the opportunity to spend the day with Jesus? For we see by now that this is the 10th hour. This was probably late afternoon, early evening. Andrew goes and tells his brother. Now, this too tells us something about how we should respond to Jesus. When we come to the place where Christ dwells and we hear his truth, we should not be content to keep it to ourselves. Andrew has to go tell somebody, and he goes and tells who is closest to him, in this case, his brother, Simon. Do we share the good news of Christ with those closest to us? Do we share him with our families and friends who do not yet believe? It can be a difficult thing to do. It is surely a great blessing to come from Christian homes and families. But what of those who are not? Those in our families, those in our friends, those around us. They can often be stubborn, resistant. They can mock us, scorn us, misunderstand us, misrepresent us when we try to bear witness to Christ. But that is a chance we have to take. For as Peter himself will later confess in John, it is Christ and Christ alone who has the words of life. And so we should be diligent to carry those words to those we love the most. Andrew tells Peter that we have found the Messiah. And again, John does the handy task of translating the Hebrew, Messiah, to its Greek equivalent, which is Christos, where we get the name Christ. So these words both mean the anointed, the chosen one. This is the one who has been expected to be the savior and deliverer of Israel. Now, not everyone comes to this conclusion so quickly or with the same degree of enthusiasm. We'll see a much different response to this announcement of Jesus here in a moment. But Andrew has no qualms with immediately accepting that Jesus is the one he is looking for, and he goes straight to Peter to get him to come along. Well, Peter comes to Jesus, and Jesus knows right away who he is. We do not have recorded here any introductions. It's there. We don't see any, oh, hi, I'm Jesus, oh, hi, I'm Peter. No, Jesus knows right away. In fact, Jesus has always known. Jesus has chosen Peter from the foundation of the earth. He has called him by name. But it is not only that Jesus knows Peter's past and present, that he is Simon, the son of Jonah. He also knows Peter's future, giving him the name by which he would be known, Cephas, or stone, which in Greek is Petros, rendered in English as Peter. 
and Peter will be the rock. But Jesus is not done. In verse 43, we see that Jesus purposes to go to Galilee. Now remember, based on our look last time at John the Baptist, we don't know exactly where geographically they are, where John has been ministering, or where Jesus has now come. It is at this place called Bethabara or Bethany beyond Jordan that we don't know exactly where it was. But while they are there, they come upon Philip, who is from Bethsaida, which is on the northern end of the Sea of Galilee. And that was the same town that Peter and Andrew are from. They knew him. He was someone from their hometown. And Philip seems to have no qualms in following. He demonstrates a similar enthusiasm that Andrew showed. In fact, Philip wants to tell somebody too. But he won't get the same reception that Andrew did when telling Peter, at least not right away. And this brings us to our next point. After the start and the spread, we come to the skeptic in verses 45 and 46. Now Philip finds this Nathaniel. There was, seems to be some deliberateness to this. Philip seemed to know Nathaniel somehow and wanted to include him, sought him out, although we don't get the details as to how he knew him. But just as Andrew wants Peter to follow, so too Philip wants Nathaniel to come to Jesus. He says with confidence, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote. So Philip has just met Jesus, and it seems that he is already convinced, like the others, that Jesus is the Messiah. But the difficulty comes when Philip tells Nathaniel exactly who they have found. When he says, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now this is perhaps the first time we see in John a recurring problem for many of Israel throughout Jesus' life and ministry. While many are persuaded that Jesus is the Messiah and follow him, many are not persuaded. Why is this? Well, ultimately, salvation belongs to the Lord, and only those whom God has purposed to come to Christ will do so. But there are secondary means, secondary causes, secondary reasons for this unbelief. And one of those is that Jesus is not the Messiah that many in Israel expected. Israel wanted a Messiah that would rule over them in full glory in this age. They wanted a Messiah who was going to throw off the Roman Empire and restore the glory days of Moses and David when Israel was herself a budding empire under God's rule. But that kind of Messiah was not God's plan. God has a bigger plan than Israel and a bigger plan than Rome. So Nathaniel seems to carry some skepticism that Philip has really found what he has claimed. He asks, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now to understand Nathaniel's doubt, we need to understand Nazareth. Now for one thing, the Messiah was expected, based on prophecy in the Old Testament, to come from Bethlehem, the city of David. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but this was probably not a well-known detail at this point. Probably not included in this initial discussion between Philip and Nathaniel. 
But not only is Nazareth the wrong place, it is in its own rights a very unimpressive place. Nazareth was in Galilee. Galilee was the rural, remote area that comprised the northern portion of the land that used to be the kingdom of Israel. But now, as the rest, it was enslaved to Rome. Galilee's population, it was predominantly Jewish, but the important people, if you will, the priests, the leaders, the influencers of Israel, and of course the temple, they were in the south. They were in Jerusalem. Galilee was the countryside, was dotted with these small towns, was a place of agriculture and a place of fishing from the Sea of Galilee. And among this obscure area, Nazareth was a relatively obscure village. And if people knew about it at all, they, like Nathaniel, probably thought of it dismissingly. That's the middle of nowhere. Why would anyone so important come from there? When you're looking for a religious revival, you might think of, you'd find somebody from the a son of the priests from Jerusalem where the temple was. If you're looking for a king, you'd expect someone from the nobility, from the upper class, from the ranking people of Israel. If you're looking for someone who's going to throw off Rome, you'd think someone from a military background. In none of these cases are you expecting a builder's son from Nazareth. God has a way of fulfilling his purposes through unexpected people from unexpected places and overthrowing and reversing the world's way of evaluating things. Think of King David, the forefather of Jesus, who began as the youngest son of a shepherding family. He was so unlikely to be the king that his father Jesse didn't even think to have him show up when Samuel came to anoint a king. And yet David was the one. Think of Jacob, the younger brother, obtaining the blessing, obtaining the favored status over and against his older, stronger brother Esau. And many, many other examples in Scripture we could see. So often God uses the weak things of the world to shame the strong, the foolish things to shame the wise. And with Christ's incarnation, the same is true. Nazareth in Galilee, laboring as a carpenter's son, this is where our Lord grew up. This is where the Messiah of Israel comes from. Nathaniel can't believe it, but he will. And this brings us to our final point. After the start, the spread, and the skeptic, we come to our final point, the sign, in verses 47 through 51. Philip tells Nathanael to come and see. He's at least got Nathanael interested enough, curious enough, that he's willing to come check out what's going on. Nathanael's probably thinking something in his mind like, it's probably nothing, but couldn't hurt to look. But as with those who have come before, Jesus knows Nathanael is coming. And he knows that Nathanael is skeptical. He knows everything about Nathanael. He has purpose to draw Nathanael to himself from the foundation of the world, just as with these others. Everything in Nathanael's life previously has brought him to this moment, and everything after will look back upon it. 
So before Nathaniel even has the opportunity to speak, Jesus addresses him, beginning with something that might almost sound like flattery at first look. Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no deceit. But this is not flattery. Jesus is forming a distinction between true and false Israel and true and false Israelites. You might remember when Pastor Barnes was here last week, he talked about the distinction between the true Israel, the Israel of God that is his church, those who love and honor and serve the Lord Jesus Christ, and those who, though being of the line of Abraham, reject and condemn Christ and fall away from him. There will be many of Israel, many physically of Israel, in the life and ministry of Jesus who will approach him with lies and deceit. The scribes and the Pharisees will oppose Jesus. They will try to trick him. They will try to deceive him. They will eventually plot to murder him, and they will succeed. Now many of Israel will come to Jesus, drawn by the teaching and the miracles to come, but they will fall away at the first sign of difficulty. Even one of Jesus' own disciples, Judas Iscariot, who will appear in the story later, he will be full of deceit. He will be embezzling money from Jesus and the disciples. And then in his greed, he will eventually betray Jesus into the hands of his enemies. But Nathaniel is not one of those. When Jesus says, Nathaniel has no deceit, he's distinguishing him as a part of true Israel. He is setting his mark upon him. It is as though he says to Nathaniel, you are mine. But there is this issue that Nathaniel thus far does not believe Jesus. This is reflected in how Nathaniel responds. How do you know me? I mean, think about it. Imagine you meet somebody for the first time and he starts telling you not about himself, but about yourself. You'd probably have a similar response. You don't know me. How do you know me? But Jesus is not an ordinary man. He is the God-man. He knows Nathaniel better than anyone else. He knows Nathaniel better than Nathaniel knows himself. And he will prove this. He answers Nathaniel, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, we don't get the details as to what exactly this episode is that Jesus is referencing, but it seems that Jesus is talking to Nathaniel about something Nathaniel did that it would not have been possible, according to normal human terms, for Jesus to have known about. Something for which Jesus was not present. Something for which no one else was probably present. Some commentators speculate that perhaps under the fig tree, Nathaniel was praying. He was involved in some kind of religious activity, perhaps even contemplating the coming of the Messiah, such that when Jesus refers to this episode without prompting, it immediately pierces Nathaniel's soul, such that he immediately goes from skeptic to stalwart. Because Nathaniel's change is immediate and profound. He says to Jesus, Rabbi, again, bestowing this honorific title, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. 
Suddenly, none of that stuff about Nazareth or Galilee matters. When Jesus purposes to save, when he purposes to call people to himself, he can cut right through the hardest of hearts and the deepest of doubts. And that is exactly what he does to Nathaniel. And to all who are in Christ, that is exactly what he has done for us. Without his supernatural intervention, we have no capacity, no ability to believe. We remain dead in our sins. But after this transformation of Nathaniel, Jesus is not done. He knows the past and present of his disciples, but he also knows the future. We see this again in verses 50 and 51. When Jesus told Nathanael about the fig tree, it was the perfect thing to say. It was exactly what Nathanael needed to hear to cut through to his heart. But Jesus is only beginning. He promises Nathanael that he will see greater things than even this supernatural knowledge that he has displayed. Nathanael and the other disciples will see the very glory of heaven itself. Jesus says they will see heaven open. They will see the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man, upon Him. Now, he's calling to mind an episode from the Old Testament where Jacob dreamed of a ladder on which the angels went up into heaven. But now those angels ascend and descend on and for Christ. Heaven is opened and all of God's blessings fall out upon those people that He has chosen to save. Now we see this in this age. We see this through the salvation of God's people and the growth and spread of His church. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1 that the angels long to see the glory of Christ that we now have seen. The angels serve God's purposes. But not only will Nathaniel and the disciples see this glory inaugurated in this age, They will see it consummated. They will see the fullness of Christ's glory in the age to come because they have the hope of salvation. They have the hope of eternal life for they have come to know their Savior. So the scene is set in John for Jesus to reveal His power and glory to the world. And He has enlisted these disciples as messengers to carry this news of this glory wherever it may go. And so starting in the next chapter, that is what will happen. But for tonight, let us reflect on this word which we have heard. Let us consider the Lamb of God and how we regard Him. Are we like Andrew and Philip who, knowing this truth of Christ, sought to tell others, May we all strive to proclaim the glories of Christ to anyone and everyone that we can. Perhaps you are here tonight, and you are like Nathaniel. You're skeptical of Jesus, skeptical of His Word, unsure if He is for you. Friend, Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Salvation can be found in no one else, no other power, no other name. So let us all believe in Christ, love Christ, honor and glorify and proclaim Christ wherever we go. Let us pray. 
Father, we thank you for this word that you have given us. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who has come as the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. I pray that we all here gathered tonight would believe this truth. I pray that as, a- as Andrew and as Philip were faithful to proclaim him to those they knew, that we would also be faithful to proclaim Christ to a lost and dying world to those around us. And I pray that we would all be comforted and assured by this glorious gospel reality that Christ has come to save and that the glory of heaven has been opened up and poured out on us through Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our final hymn tonight is hymn number 496. 